This is a broadcast of the third lecture in the Mendocino College Symposium series. This series connects Mendocino faculty with community on important topics. This lecture was given on February 2nd, and you can find out more about this lecture and the symposium series, including for further reading and the PowerPoint for this talk on the Mendocino College website at www.mendocino.edu symposium. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Nika Aguirre, and I teach history for Mendocino College. Our speaker today is Dr. Larry Aguirre. Dr. Aguirre holds a BA in Anthropology, Sociology, and History from the University of Redlands, a Master of Science and Physician Assistant in Primary Care from Western University, and a Doctor in Medical Science from the University of Lynchburg. Dr. Aguirre is Captain in the Army National Guard and practices medicine in our community, as well as teaching health for Mendocino College. His talk today is titled Curious Reactions, Vaccines, and Social Responses. And now I'll turn it over to Dr. Aguirre. I'd like to welcome everyone to this discussion tonight. It is fairly ambitious. We're going to be covering a lot of topics, um, everything from the start of the very first vaccine. So we're going to be covering some history. And then from there, we're going to uh, discuss some of the social reactions behind that as well. And from there, we're going to use that as a springboard to kind of talk about vaccines now and how they how they work and some of our ongoing concerns for them. And then we'll even touch on some COVID-19 related matters, but uh, rest assured, we're not going to be focusing on that tonight. Uh, we're really going to be focusing on um, smallpox more than anything and the history around that. Uh, there's a lot to, to go over. And um, so welcome and uh, hold on tight. So here we go. Um, the only disclosure I want to say is uh, the views in this presentation are those of mine and they don't necessarily reflect uh, any official policy of the U.S. government or my employers uh, or the college itself. And I don't have any financial disclosures at all from uh, any like pharmaceutical companies or anything like that. I want to start us off thinking about a, a time period not too long ago. Uh, so mostly we're going to go back uh, to the 1700s is where our story starts, although smallpox has been around a lot longer. And, and I want to read this uh, for those viewers, or those people who aren't viewing, but listening instead. Uh, this is from T.B. McAuley, a famous British historian. The smallpox was always present, filling the churchyards with corpses, tormenting with constant fears, all whom it had stricken leaving on those whose lives it spared the hideous traces of its power, turning the babe into the changeling at which the mother shuddered, and making the eyes and cheeks of the big-hearted maiden objects of horror to the lover. That's, that's pretty grim stuff, and uh, so that's what we're going to be dealing with today. And it was a very large uh, cause of death. Uh, there's other things I want you to keep in mind as we're discussing this case is that this goes back to a time before the germ theory was fully flushed out. There were some ideas about contagion, especially with, for instance, the Black Death and syphilis. Um, but there was a lot of conditions that weren't necessarily considered uh, contagious. There are other more vague ideas about contagion, and some of them even were more related to uh, morality and not so much something that could be spread, but more... Uh, something that you got be as a punishment or something that you need to learn from. So I have down here on my slide, in London, the bills of mortality indicated that smallpox was probably the single lethal cause of death in the 18th century. Of course, that's in, in London. Now, smallpox is something that was seen you know, all around the world. It would spread. But for this lecture, we're really going to be focusing more on um, Europe and, and England in particular. So again, yeah, this is back in the days before we understood what even caused it. And also keep in mind during this time period that death was ever present, especially from infectious disease. Um, in some instances, like 50% of your children wouldn't make it to adulthood. Um, so that's a very different world than the one we live in now. Um, so let me start off by just kind of discussing smallpox itself. Um, so we kind of understand what we're dealing here with. It is a virus, a very old virus. It's considered a little bit bigger than the average virus. Um, it's double-stranded DNA virus, and this tiny little thing that causes lots of misery. 
So the clinical manifestation of this, um, usually it's spread by respiratory, though there's other ways to get it, but primarily your respiratory system. Um, it starts rather suddenly uh, with headaches, backaches, fever, kind of like these flu-like symptoms. It's followed by some sores in the mouth. And then after that, it kind of makes its way into the dermal layers of the skin. Starts off as some little sort of red spots on the skin, usually on the face and the extremities, and then kind of goes to the rest of the body and then develops into that characteristic rash that's associated with smallpox, um, much worse usually than like a typical chickenpox. It's much bigger and the blistering. So after, it's, uh, after you have it, you know, there is a risk of death. Usually about 30% is what we're looking at. Now, there's actually more than one type of smallpox virus, um, but the one that was most common had a fatality of around 30% usually. The pock marks, uh, the s- typical scarring after the, uh, the pus filled sort of pockets resolve, you have this scarring that occurs um, in about 65 to 80% of those who survive. The only good thing, of course, is that if you do survive, um, you would have lifelong immunity. So uh, let's just real quick recap some of the history I've here. So smallpox, we don't know exactly how long it's been around, but a long time, maybe 10,000 BCE. So basically when humans started um, gathering into agricultural settlements, it's thought that it spread from the animals along with a lot of other of our common infectious diseases. We think that's where they came from. Um, it's mentioned in Chinese and Sanskrit texts, you know, around 11,000 BCE. Strangely, it's not specifically mentioned in classical or biblical sources. It may be, it's just they didn't describe it that well. There's other plagues and pestilence that are described there. Uh, but in Europe, we start seeing things that we can describe that really sound like smallpox to late antiquity to the early medieval period, somewhere around um, 700 common era. It gains a name as the speckled monster, one of its, its many names. And then the term for, of smallpox comes about in the 15th century England to differentiate it from syphilis, which is uh, has the ability and is known as a great imitator for it being able to mimic other diseases. The I want to go into the vaccine sort of precursors for smallpox because it wasn't done just overnight you may have heard that with Edward Jenner kind of um, being the person who developed it Um, we'll talk about him later in the lecture but there's a lot of steps that go into this rather complicated story I have here a picture of Lady Mary Montague a picture of here is a young lady she is fairly well known for her poetry she had somewhat of an adventurous spirit and um you know, obviously a great dresser as well. And the reason our story starts with her is because she was in Constantinople, accompanied uh, by her husband, who was a diplomat there. And her being sort of a curious and keen observer was, you know, someone who went through the streets and also uh, noticed that during the fall that they had these, I guess, gatherings um, to help do some inoculation against smallpox. And she writes in 1717 to her friend, the smallpox so fatal and so general among us here is entirely harmless by the invention of what she called engrafting. And she goes on to describe the procedure in which older ladies would come to these these parties with some sort of smallpox matter. It's not very well described what it is, but it's a nutshell full of this matter and put into the vein as much matter as can lie upon the head of a needle. So basically they're making a small cut and then taking some of the smallpox matter and putting it into the vein. And then, so the idea is uh, to see, to give basically a reaction. So they, they got this matter from someone who's already had smallpox, usually from someone who's getting over it and kind of the, the pustules are starting to, crust over and you take some of that matter and then put it into the vein. Uh, and then it's considered a success. If basically it gives the person who got it a very mild case of smallpox. So maybe a few lesions here and there um, in very mild, like fever. And that's considered um, a success. So interesting side notes here is they don't know when they started doing this in Istanbul, but it's 
thought that hundreds of years before this had been developed, this technique. Um, they have it in Africa and in India. In India, there's even a Brahmin cult to smallpox where or some of the priests would go around doing a similar procedure. In China, it seems like they usually use uh, more of a nasal route. And then an in, another interesting aside, in, uh, in the Americas, uh, Cotton Mather, who's more famous for his uh, part in the Salem witch trials, actually had a, a slave that discussed having had this procedure done on him as a child. And this was in 1706, and it kind of piqued his interest uh, in the Americas, and he would write back to to London about this as well. So, as I said, La uh, Lady Mary was a keen observer, and she wrote this back to England. Um, and people took note of this for a couple of reasons. One, because of her social status, she was an aristocrat, and she was well educated and a good writer. And also, note there was other physicians who had seen similar maybe a decade earlier and wrote back. Um, to England as well. So this was one of a series, um, but she did something further than this. Um, she actually had it done on her child while still in Constantinople. Uh, she had the procedure done on him. And it's thought maybe she did this, number one, because she saw that it was effective, but number two, she herself had actually suffered smallpox and her famous beauty had been marred by the smallpox scars. Um, so she was keenly aware of it herself. And, you know, everybody was at this time period. So she does it on her child is thought of as a success. And then in 1721, she goes back to England and uh, it, the procedure is done there on her daughter. And this is a couple of years later. And so this kind of gets people's attention more so than just writing about it. It actually happens. So several prominent physicians intrigued by this kind of this idea uh, started doing more statistics. And, and this is, um, through the Royal Society of London. Um, so one, James Juran showed that 40% mortality rate in bad epidemics. So, hey, this is something maybe we should take a little bit more seriously looking at. Some people started actually trying this out. Some of the, some of the physicians, of course, most of them were not ready to do this for a couple of reasons. You know, they didn't want to risk their patients nor their reputation on something that really seemed counterintuitive. So it's going to be a little while still before people start actually taking this on. So, but one person who does it is uh, the royalty. Actually, we have so someone in the in the royal family taking this up, and before doing it on their own family, they actually use it on prisoners. Uh, but before they do it on the prisoners, you know, they they actually ask them surprisingly enough, and those who would volunteer their if they survived, they would be granted amnesty. So they had some volunteers, six of them, and uh, they went through the procedure and they actually survived. And not only that, they took one of them and exposed them to people with smallpox just to show that, yeah, indeed, it did confer immunity on them. So then after this, they actually tried it in a couple in an orphanage. And then finally, they, they tried it on members of um, the royal family. So this generates a lot more curiosity. And then the Royal Society of London starts issuing, they start looking into it much more. And the way they do it is they start going, okay, let's, if we're going to consider this, we need to collect more data, which is exactly what they do. It's kind of surprising maybe for the time they're trying to use evidence to say whether or not the risk of doing this procedure is worth it. You know, is, is it going to be safe enough? Because there still is risk with this. So doing this, some people actually would get smallpox from this procedure, a full-blown case. And there were fatalities around maybe 2%. Not so bad if you're considered doing bad epidemics, 30 to 40% fatality. Uh, but they didn't know this yet. It wasn't until this report was done over a almost a decade um, that showed the data. So basically, they had people out there sending in letters of their own data so they can compile it together. And they showed... Uh, Right here, I'll, I'll read off some of the statistics from the report that was compiled. Only 26 of 1,087 inoculated individuals had died, while 3,000 of the 18,229 or 17% of people with natural smallpox perished. So 17, 2%, uh, you know, and this is before they're getting like the massive sort of studies and data that we would do, not double blinded trials or anything like that, but still. 
enough general evidence to start really get people thinking about this and having it actually catch on and people start using it. Um, so, but because of this, the, we have the development of some rather elaborate techniques and some of them very expensive. So physicians kind of develop these techniques and we're selling their procedure to people and starting to make money off of it. You know, not everybody, of course, had uh, the same success rates. Some people had much better, much worse. In 1750, the Sutton family of surgeons is famous for developing a technique that is not only safer, less expensive, and can be done much quicker. Um, so the, the first Sutton in the family develops this method, and his children kind of learn it as well. And um, pretty much their, their kind of secret was picking the right people, you know, people who already had mild cases and using them as their source material, and then just making a tiny cut, essentially, and putting them that once they make that little cut, putting in a little bit of that, you know, smallpox material in there and then watching them. Um, but that's the, their kind of secret is the right person and just being, you know, not very invasive with it. So people start doing this in the countryside, it kind of becomes more, more popular. You are listening to the Mendocino College Symposia. Our speaker is Dr. Larry Aguirre, and the talk is Curious Reactions, Vaccines, and Social Responses. There's something of note that happens is uh, a John Fuster, who's a physician in Gloucestershire, notes that sometimes that smallpox procedure didn't seem to work. So they're trying to, to do it. But it wouldn't take, they wouldn't have that typical reaction of, you know, a mild case. And one old farmer said that, um, you know, the reason he thinks it's not working is because he had a case of the cowpox very severely, if that makes any difference to them. And it seems like in the countryside, it was kind of known that if you got this cowpox, it seemed to protect you from having regular smallpox. This hadn't been shown definitively with, with any sort of scientific experiment, but it seemed to be known somewhat in the countryside. And of note, Edward Jenner uh, was uh, from this area. So perhaps he kind of, he, you know, may have heard of this and it's thought that he was at the society meeting or maybe one of his mentors was at the society meeting when this was being reported. Uh, there were some already questioned whether or not this was morally and ethically something that should be done, especially from the, the Calvinist, you know, religious persuasion, because they didn't want to interfere with the divine will of God. You know, for some people, maybe there was a lesson that was supposed to be taught in all of this. You know, maybe that's some sort of divine punishment as well. So there's things to consider. So not everybody was on board, you know, and thinking maybe we shouldn't be doing this or playing God and, and those sort of things. So early on, people started really thinking about that. Um, so now if we go uh, fast forwarding to um, Edward Jenner of the smallpox vaccine fame here. Again, he was a country doctor uh, from Gloucestershire, and he had himself been inoculated as a child at the age of eight. And he went on to study medicine in London, kind of uh, mentored under people who had a curiosity for experimentation and sort of scientific ways of thinking. And he went back to work, you know, in the country, kind of, he, he was a man who did a lot of things. Um, he was a very curious sort. He even made his own balloon at one point. And he heard of these findings like we had discussed, but he was the first one to go, well, maybe we should try this. So he makes uh, the leap of, there's actually others before him to do it, but he was the first one to kind of do it in a more, systematic scientific way of thinking, let's maybe try this and study and see if there really is anything to this. So the cowpox is something that's, that's common. It's kind of similar to smallpox in a lot of ways that they, you know, the viruses are very close in the family. It produces similar lesions, um, but usually not all over the body, it's more localized. And the systemic symptoms such as headache and fever are usually very much more mild and you don't usually die from it. It's kind of self-limiting and goes away. Uh, so he, he kind of waits it out until he, he sees a case, basically, where a young, young lady, a uh, milkmaid, has a case of smallpox. And we actually have the drawing of her hand right down here. It's, you know, oftentimes in the hands because of that picture showed. Sometimes it's on the udders and as they're milking the cow, they can, um, you know, get it 
transmit it into their hand, you know, if they have like a small cut or something, or just be buying close, um, breathing it in. You know, it's pretty easy to get it if you're in close proximity uh, in various ways. So uh, they have a family with an eight-year-old boy who, you know, they, they meet the two of them together in an office, and he takes some sample of that cowpox on, on the hand, opens it, and then transfers it to a little cut and open wound onto each arm of this, of this child. Um, basically, to, okay, they've done it and see what happens. Luckily, he was okay. He developed, you know, a small fever, but otherwise he, he was okay after a couple of days. Um, I don't know if he got a sticker, you know, sucker or not after this, but um, nonetheless, he was a, a brave soul. And he actually comes back several weeks later and inoculates the child with smallpox itself and notes, hey, he doesn't get smallpox. So he kind of completes that circle with actually giving him or attempting to give him smallpox and having it show that he did, in fact, have immunity from it. Now, when he wrote up his paper about this, he tried a few times, wrote it up. He called it, you know, vaccine from Baca for Latin for cow. So that's where vaccine comes from. Later on, um, all vaccines would be given that name. And we, we think that was done by Pasteur, who also pioneered vaccines himself. Uh, but these findings were published. And there's not a lot of people signing up for it. At first, of course, um, but it does kind of gain popularity over the years uh, rather quickly. And by 1799, over 5,000 people had been vaccinated in England. And in 1803, the Royal Jenner Society was founded to promote vaccination. Now, Edward Jenner himself, he doesn't actually become rich by any means for this. He is instrumental in promoting this idea of using vaccines. And, he, you know, that's very important because he was such a big promoter and he even did it. Uh, for free. And so he never really became rich from this discovery. But uh, again, this is the first time, the very first actual vaccine. Not everybody, of course, was on board. Um, People kind of nervous about this whole idea of of, of vaccination, because it truly is counterintuitive, um, even though it proved to be uh, very useful and much safer than the inoculation method of using um, dried up smallpox. The governments, of course, started to take notes for a couple of reasons to protect their population. Uh, but Napoleon, of course, would see how useful that would be not only to protect the population, but also in his army to protect from, you know, infection. Uh, you know, I mean, the army is noted in the beginning. and That's still very big uh, priority for us is making sure our soldiers are vaccinated. Uh, 1814, we see the United Kingdom pass its first vaccination act which provides free vaccines for the poor and also the outlawed. Uh, And then this is followed by other uh, laws. The Vaccine Act of 1854 made it uh, compulsory for infants within the first three months. So this is the first time they're actually making a law and saying, hey, I think, you know, everybody should just do this. Um, You know, it's coming from a place of wanting to protect uh, but, you know, anytime you kind of force something, you know, oftentimes raises some red flags for people. And that's exactly what happens. Um, so people go, okay, why is this being forced on us? Um, especially those who on moral stands are kind of worried about. Uh, so we see this, these riots breaking out in certain towns and something called the Anti-Vaccination League breaking out. And this is in 1853, keep in mind. Uh, but still more laws are passed in 1857 um, that extend and make these laws even more strict. And then in response to that, uh, there's an anti-compulsory vaccination league that is founded. And this develops into uh, a fairly sophisticated um, group that really starts looking at, okay, what is the place of the government here? Uh, You know, do they have the right to be able to tell people, you know, whether or not they should take this medical intervention, you know? So they start asking these questions um, and they also, you know, start this league that has kind of sophisticated books about anti-vaccination and the concerns they raise 
and even a journal, the Anti-Vaccinator in 1885 that comes out, and then a big demonstration of 100,000 people in Leicester with 100,000. Um, so yeah, a much more sophisticated sort of response and raising some fairly good questions and, you know, people just generally concerned about, you know, why they're being forced to do this and whether or not it's safe. Um, so because of this, you know, the government actually takes notes and, you know, the league is successful in that where they have, you know, these big committees are established um, to listen to the grievances and kind of think about it. And they have experts from both sides and community members coming in. And over a seven year period, they have, they're hearing this extensive testimony. You know, they don't really see that vaccines are, are, are dangerous, the smallpox vaccine. Um, but they are sympathetic to not necessarily having people forced to go along with the procedure. So in 1898, there's a vaccination act um, that removes the penalties and doesn't force people to take on vaccination, even though um, they never found any harm in it, really, and they continue to encourage it. And even to this day in England, um, it's not forced. There are countries within the EU where it is it's still the law to get you know, vaccinated. Um, so that's kind of how things stand. And, and it's quite interesting, these arguments that are happening at this time period which really mirror our own all the way down to today. And we're going to kind of use this as a springboard to look into part two to kind of understand a little bit more about vaccines and kind of dig into to how they work and how we, how we think they work and um, some of the contemporary issues that we're still dealing with. You are listening to the Mendocino College Symposia. Our speaker is Dr. Larry Aguirre, and the talk is Curious Reactions, Vaccines and Social Responses. So there's a lot of ways that the body protects itself. You know, even your skin, for instance, is part of your immunity. Um, but the way I want to break it down today is kind of into two different areas, both your specific and non-specific immunity, which we're going to go into. But for our purposes of vaccines, it's really the specific part of the immunity that's most important because that's the one that forms what are known as antibodies that are going to be important for protecting you for something like influenza or smallpox. So I want to start off with the nonspecific immunity. Now, this is a complicated topic, both specific and nonspecific immunity, but we're just trying to distill it here to the most important parts uh, for our talk. So this is nonspecific immune response. So if you consider something like a splinter going into your skin, you know, because of the fact that there's probably little viruses and bacteria on the splinter and on the skin itself, that's going to be introduced into the tissue. Now, the body is going to recognize that. You know, one is, of course, pain, so you want to remove the pain source. But then also, you know, when you get injured, you kind of remember there's oftentimes swelling, redness, warmth, heat. Now, these are all nonspecific sort of immune reactions that come to there, that redness and warmth and swelling is your body kind of responding to it and sending in uh, white blood cells into that area and getting it highly vascularized so that they can start cleaning up. Again, this is nonspecific. They're just kind of these big white, bigger white blood cells that can go in there and kind of eat those smaller bacteria and try and neutralize the threat. Now, as part of this response of the nonspecific immune system, we have things that you are uh, painfully familiar with. Things like uh, fever, for instance, is our, part of our nonspecific immune system. The thought we, behind this is we increase the temperature to make an environment that is unfavorable to the bacteria and more favorable to us. Of course, that can go too far. Too high of a temperature is going to be bad for you, but a mild increase in your, in your temperature is not so bad and, and may be helpful, um, you know, but not a high fever, of course. So that's part of it. Um, achiness, fatigue, that's also part of our nonspecific immune response. Uh, you know, thought of, you know, maybe our body's way of telling us, hey, maybe you should calm down, take a rest, let your body kind of kick in and respond to this and get rid of this potential threat. So those are all nonspecific or humoral immunity. Um, but there's more to it than that. Uh, I, like I said, I want to discuss the, the specific immunities as well. Now, there's a whole bunch of different types of white blood cells out there that have different jobs in our immune system. But the ones I want to focus on right now are the ones that can produce the antibody. So an antibody, probably heard that, maybe seen a picture of it. It's usually depicted kind of as a like a Y-shaped spear or harpoon almost. 
And it's a protein structure that's produced by white blood cells. And it's used to think about it as like attack evaders or, you know, make them more susceptible to attack from our immune system. Now, the one problem with it is, you know, you, we, our body doesn't automatically produce those in large numbers right away. You know, it has to be able to, number one, recognize the threats and then produce, hopefully, the right antibody and then generate them in large numbers. Um, but the very first time you see that threat, you know, you're not going to be able to do that very quickly. So it's a, something that takes a little bit longer for it to kick in. So you have your nonspecific immunity to kind of start start the process and then your more specific immunity will kick in and kind of work together to neutralize that threat. <clears throat> so as you can imagine, though, that's it's a little bit time consuming. So the idea behind our immune system is once it's seen that threat, it's likely that we're going to see that threat again. So the body has the ability to mount a more complicated response when it sees it again, because those white blood cells that were triggered to produce all those antibodies, we have these really cool things called memory cells that when you see that pathogen or bacteria or virus again, has the ability to multiply really quickly and then start producing those antibodies that are more specific against it. So the next time you see it, you can mount a very quick response and neutralize that threat. And that's basically how the idea of immunity is, is we develop these and we're able to respond much more quickly to subsequent infections. You can imagine if we didn't have that as part of our immune system, then we'd have to be dealt with the same threat over and over again, you know, and potentially um, dying, maybe not from the first exposure, but multiple other exposures. You know, people do sometimes die from the first exposure to something. Maybe they don't develop those antibody response very quickly, or they have a weakened immune system, or they're just unlucky. Um, so what we're trying to do is basically trick the immune system into working for us before the pathogen or a virus becomes a real threat. So that's kind of the beauty of it. So now let's let's go into, armed with that kind of idea, how vaccines actually work. So the things that we need a vaccine to do is be able to trigger that immune response, but they need to be able to work both safely and also effectively to be able to guard against these otherwise infectious diseases, you know. So there's a whole host of different types, and we have these different types. A lot of it is um, they were developed over historic, and we didn't have time to go into all the history of all the different vaccines it's actually a really fascinating history, especially if you look at kind of the time of Pasteur and his work. But a lot of these is just people coming up with different ways of figuring out how to make vaccines. And that's how we come with these kind of general groups of vaccines. The live attenuated vaccines, um, such as smallpox, measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox, some examples, um, inactivated vaccines, such as flu, the injectable type, not the, the nasal, hepatitis A, and then there's kind of this class I threw in together, the subunit recombinant polysaccharide sort of vaccines, such as hepatitis B, meningitis, HPV. I know these are complicated looking terms, but we'll go into it and, and I'll show you it's not quite as complicated. It is, but we can distill it and make it simple to understand. So the live attenuated vaccines, if you recall from smallpox, you know, he, he took the postule from the milkmaid's hand and gave that to the child. So in a lot of ways, that person who initially had the cowpox was already fighting it. So that virus was already weakened. So he gave that weakened version to the child and the child was able to easily fight it off with minimal symptoms. And that's kind of the idea with these live attenuated vaccines. And because basically we're giving people a very sick version of it, um, something that's not able to mount a real um, attack on you. So basically, you know, it's on its last leg, we inject it into you. Um, and they do various methods, maybe heat treats and other methods to actually kind of make it so it's not a very, um, it's not very well when they give it to you. That way it can't trigger the immune system. There were instances in the past where this had happened, such as with polio back in the day, um, when it was still in this version, it was exceedingly rare, uh, but potentially it could still happen, but we don't have that version of the vaccine anymore. Uh, we don't We don't use it anymore, I should say. So we don't have to really worry about that triggering it. As long as you have a normal, healthy immune system, this, you know, your body will recognize it 
neutralize it before it becomes an issue and um, have very strong immune response to it. And again, it can't, can't make you sick um, as long as you have a normal immune system. Now for the inactivated vaccines, now we're talking about something that's actually already dead uh, and that is gonna be injected into you. It gives your body the ability, your immune system will kind of look at it, recognize it. So when the live version comes to you, it can mount that response. So again, this is dead and it can't do anything to you, uh, but yet it still gives that strong, robust immune response. So moving along, uh, kind of similar. So we went from alive, but mostly dead to dead. Now this, I use the graphic of this little dead thing kind of in the blender. That's a good way to think about it. You take basically pieces of a virus or a bacteria and give, you know, put it in a vaccine form. Often it's like a, uh, maybe a protein or a polysaccharide component. And you expose that to the person. Uh, now, that also gives a very strong immune response. So what happens is that part of the vaccine is also a crucial part in uh, being able to recognize it on the real thing, the real virus or bacteria. So it'll recognize it as foreign and it already has the memory B cells there and be able to mount this more sophisticated immune response because it recognizes it. And one of the good things about this is even people with weakened immune system can typically take these sort of vaccines um, because <laughs> again, it's just pieces of it. You can't get sick from it. Um, and now if we go into the last class, the one, not many are actually made from a toxoid. Tetanus is a common one, the tetanus toxoid, where it's basically an endotoxin of the bacteria. It's similar where, hey, it would recognize this toxin and anything that has it, it would attack that bacteria. So it's kind of similar to those other ones. <clears throat> so that's in a nutshell how these, how these work and how we use our immune system. Um, to kind of trick it into attacking these things before we get the real thing. Thank goodness. Uh, now, looking at this, you know, we, we still have hesitancies around it. You know, concern for side effects from vaccines. You know, what am I putting into me or my child's body or my loved ones? Um, other reasons we're worried about using these is like lack of need. Some of these things like smallpox, like, would you really need that? Like, nobody's seen that for such a long time. And of course, we don't really vaccinate for smallpox at all anymore. Um, we have the ability, but we don't. So that's another good question. Do we really need it? And a lot of these we still do because they're endemic, you know, in our population. Concerns about are they effective or ineffective? Like that, I probably hear this most about flu vaccine. Um, people worried about it. And every year it's true. Some years it is going to be much more effective than other years because they just can't easily predict exactly which flus or if there's going to be a novel flu that comes around. So some years it's really effective and some years it's not, you know, but uh, healthcare workers, we almost always get it just to help protect others from it, of course, and you know ourselves as well. Uh, we'll talk about these things a little bit more detail down the road. And there's another concern about whether or not it will overload the immune system. Um, a lot of people worried about that, especially when you come in and maybe they're getting like you know, four vaccines at once, and each of those vaccines have different components in it. Um, there's just general distrust of the government. We kind of always have that, you know, a little distrust of the government, certainly healthy, um, but it's probably healthier when we have a government that we truly do kind of trust. And we, we know we have better public health outcomes when we feel that we have high levels of trust in our, in our government and our healthcare systems. And hopefully we'll keep working towards that. And then some people, the thought of natural immunity being better than, uh, than the immunity given by vaccines. So we'll look at this as we go through this as well. So part of what I wanna talk about is safety, of course, and what do we do to mitigate risk? Um, so there's a couple of different things that we do. The clinical trials and the FDA approval process. Uh, the FDA approval process for things like vaccines and drugs is it's pretty rigorous. It's not as rigorous for devices, but for drugs and vaccines, it is pretty rigorous. And we're going to look at that a little bit. Um, <clears throat> also, we have other things to consider as far as uh, safety, such as informed consent at the time of the visit. You know that discussion about um, answering questions about vaccines, um, making sure they're healthy enough to get them at the time, uh, making sure they're not allergic to anything that might be in them. Oftentimes, as part of that, they might use health screens to, to help determine that along as like the, the history and physical exam. Um, vaccine information sheets are often given at the time of visits. Uh, 
that have information about the vaccine, oftentimes a little bit of information about the actual virus or bacteria trying to protect against. And then there are also these national vaccine injury compensation programs. Now keep in mind still, it's rare for people to have serious adverse effects from uh, a vaccine. It does happen, especially something like an allergic reaction. Um, and for that, they've developed a compensation program. COVID is actually not, the COVID vaccine is not under that, but it is under a different one, the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program. And, you know, that's easily Googled and linked, and you can, you can check that out. You are listening to the Mendocino College Symposia. Our speaker is Dr. Larry Aguirre, and the talk is Curious Reactions, Vaccines, and Social Responses. So before something even goes to a clinical trial, it has to go through what's called the Institutional Review Board, or IRB, which you may have heard of. A lot of institutions have these research institutions as well as universities. Anytime you're going to do research on human subjects, you know, they gather people to think about it, not just from how is the clinical trial structured, but also you know, to think about safety and ethical concerns that might be raised before the trial even starts. Um, They also look at who's going to be part of the team. So this is experts, and there's usually also people from the community who are part of these review boards. Um, So that process is fairly rigorous, and there's a lot of discussion before it even gets off the ground. And then if we go into the clinical phase studies, uh, like a phase one is a safety trial, and it's usually a very small number of participants and they're looking at safety profiles. Again, a small number of people, and there's usually kind of two different people that would be um, represented in these trials, very healthy people. And then also also on the other side of the, of the spectrum, people who are expected to be terminal anyways, um, and they kind of don't have any other choices. So sometimes those, those are kind of like the two main groups that might be in a phase one. Uh, phase two trial that it goes to, usually several hundred people, but still that's not a lot of people when we're looking for things like side effects and, you know, how, how efficacious is the medication. So what they're really looking for here, again, is more about safety. They're trying to fine tune a little bit more about kind of like how much of the drug might we need to use. And then from there, you know, if it's considered safe and worthy to go forward to the phase three, it will. The FDA estimates only about 33% of medications move on at this phase. And this is, of course, in the U.S. that we're talking about. Other countries don't have a stringent sort of um, testing, and it might not take as long either. Um, phase three, that's the one that a lot of people, you probably remember hearing about with COVID, kind of get excited about because there's a lot more people that are going to be part of this phase, you know, thousands of people. Um, so then we can really start seeing, okay, is it effective? What sort of side effects? You know, the more people you give it to, the more chances of having side effects. So we start, you know, looking at that, again, fine-tuning it. And again, this is over and over again about efficacy and safety. Oftentimes, these trials are going to have what are called a placebo, which you've probably heard of. So this is to, you know, basically maybe like maybe a sugar pill or the vaccine, maybe something that just has, could be an injection just with saline, so something that's non-active. And they use that as part of usually a double-blind trial, meaning the participants, and also those people doing the investigation, nobody knows which is the placebo and which one is um, the real thing. And this is to help eliminate bias that's just always going to be there in any clinical trial, because you really want your intervention to work, of course. So this helps to eliminate that and you get better studies because of it. So then we're still not done even after that. So the phase four, of course, is when it's already gained the FDA approval and it's going to go out to even more people, more percentage of the population. And then you're going to start, again, evaluating still for safety, long-term safety. Again, now that we've given it to more people, the more things that we have to worry about with it. Uh, So it's not even over. Even after phase three, there's still phase four. Still people are going to be studying it and thinking about it long after it's gained the FDA approval. Talk about side effects for just a little bit too, because that's, you know, thing that everybody worries about with medicines, um, the side effects. So as part of that process, the FDA usually will exclude things that have a lot of side effects. I've heard some people wonder if penicillin even would have been passed under now FDA's uh, approval because, you know, it doesn't have a lot of side effects, but maybe more so than, than others as far as allergies, but who knows? Um, but 
that's something that they look for, of course, and should be discussed at the time when you take a vaccine. Uh, so one thing that when you have a vaccine, a common side effect is things like achiness, fever, fatigue. Those are side effects that you could potentially have. And if you recall from how our nonspecific immunity works, you know, those are things that you should have if you have a robust immune system and you're responding to it. Um, I'll let you know, I did actually have Moderna vaccine myself. And the first time I got it, had a sore arm. Second time, certainly did have a fairly robust immune response. Just some fever and chills. Um, but, you know, went away fairly fast, <clears throat> luckily, right? Uh, because I didn't get COVID, of course. I got a really strong immune response. So even though it was uncomfortable, I was happy to know that at least my body is responding to this. And, hey, this looks like it's going to be working. Uh, but usually with kids who get an immune, you know, get the injection, um, you're going to see redness. That's a normal side effect, a little bump there, a little induration or firmness, a little soreness. That's common with anything. Again, that's just part of the way your immune response is. So I want you to know that's a, that's a normal reaction. And yeah, sometimes even elevated temperature, you know, not feeling quite yourself. But that's not because they're getting anything and it's it's really just the body's immune response. So that's a normal and healthy response. Another common thing that people worry about is autism. Um, not as much anymore. I don't see this as much because I, I think that's because there's been so many subsequent studies uh, trying to find a link between vaccines and the preservatives such as mercury and seeing if that maybe does cause autism. And so far, we've not been able to do that. And I feel confident in saying that there's not a link between uh, vaccines and, and autism. Um, it's a very complicated condition and we still don't know what causes it. And it seems like it's polyfactorial. I mean, there's a lot of different things that go into it. That's what makes it complicated. It's not just one thing. We have been able to find some, um, you know, genetic markers that seem to partially uh, help us, you know, you know, say, hey, maybe that, that's part of it, but we still don't know. It, it's very complicated neurodevelopmental disorder. But hopefully, yeah, we'll further elucidate the causes to that. And, and the mercury, here's kind of interesting with mercury, because that was in, in vaccines as a preservative, especially multivial, you'll still see it in there, to help protect against um, contamination like bacteria. So, you know, so it doesn't spoil it, essentially. So if you were to think in your head, what has more... Mercury, a shot of MMR, measles, mumps, rubella, or a can of tuna. You might be surprised to hear that it's it's actually the can of tuna by far. And the, the reason for that is because mercury has been removed from all the childhood immunizations. Um, that was done, I believe, in 2004, just as a broader government effort to reduce kind of mercury in a lot of different products and things. Um, there was, of course, some concern there, even though there was never any cause for concern there's we didn't see any reason why mercury caused any side effects and part of the reason this was it wasn't the normal sort of mercury that's in tuna it was a different type of mercury that breaks down in the body and is eliminated much faster so it doesn't have the same uh, risk of kind of like building up in the system like mercury for instance in tuna uh, and in the environment that you would find so but yeah rest is sure that it's not actually in childhood immunizations anymore um, now, the, will it cause the disease is trying to prevent? Hopefully you saw from how the vaccines are made, um, that's just not the case because all of our modern vaccines, they don't, they don't have anything in them that would cause you to have the disease. A lot of people like, with flu, they worry about that. And I think some people might have just a more strong immune response where they feel achy and flu, feverish. I, I don't ever have that response to the flu vaccine, but I've heard a lot of people kind of complain about that. Um, I usually just get a sore arm, but maybe some people just have a stronger immune response, but the injection itself cannot give you the flu. And then overwhelming the immune system. That's a good one, right? You kind of might worry about that. Again, giving all these vaccines all at once. The thing about it, I want you to kind of keep in mind with that is our bodies are actually made to be able to handle a lot of viruses and bacteria. They're, they're made to, to respond to that. And you know, 24-7 our body is having an immune response to something, either on our skin or something we ate or something we're breathing. Um, so that's its job. So having a little bit more of an immune reaction, I don't think that's a big deal. They actually have studied this too. They've looked to see, is, it, is there a risk of having 
you know, multiple vaccines at once. And for the most part, there really, there really isn't, um, you know, we, we do this all the time. There is an exception such as with the measles, mumps, rubella, and varicella all at once. They showed that in rare instances, it increased the risk of seizures, uh, maybe febrile induced. Uh, it's thought that those people probably are already kind of more at risk for that type of seizure in general. And um, it just kind of lowered the threshold perhaps, but that's easily you know, fixed by just not giving on all at once, um, that measles, mumps, rubella all at once. Uh, but again, that's very, very rare. A couple other very rare things that you can see, uh, such as an allergic reaction. But of course, you could be allergic to a strawberry. So, um, you know, that could happen with anything. But again, that's very, very rare, as well as a condition called Guillain-Barre syndrome, um, which sometimes can happen, especially with flu, but exceedingly rare. We're talking like less than one in a million here. And that can happen also from an immune response, sometimes from infections like influenza itself. So perhaps those people are already uh, just higher at risk for that happening. We're not sure. But again, we're talking exceedingly rare things here. And, you know, I give my family, for instance, the flu vaccine without hesitating. Certainly, you know, we're all concerned about these things. And it's, it's not unreasonable to be concerned, but hopefully you'd be able to discuss these things and really look at some of the evidence that's been compiled. And that will help a little bit with these, you know, relevant fears that people have. You are listening to the Mendocino College Symposia. Our speaker is Dr. Larry Aguirre, and the talk is Curious Reactions, Vaccines and Social Responses. Uh, other considerations I want you to keep in mind about vaccines. Now, one of these is herd immunity. Now, that's the idea that uh, enough people get the vaccine, basically. But as you recall, not everybody, it doesn't work on everyone. If you've seen like the data for COVID vaccines, for instance, you're looking about 95%. So what about that other like 5% that maybe doesn't protect against 100%? It seems it really does really help prevent from deaths and hospitalizations, even in that smaller 5%. Um, but let's say just for argument's sake, it didn't, it didn't take for whatever reason. That's where herd immunity really comes in. So the idea is, if almost everybody else is immune to it, so every time that virus bumps into someone, basically it's going to be eliminated before it gets a chance to be spread to someone else. So by getting it, you are not only protecting yourself, but you're protecting those people that maybe the vaccine just didn't take on that small percentage. But there's something else to really keep in mind, and I think is a really important point that some people forget. There are people in the community that cannot get the vaccine. Um, some people who don't have a normal immunity, they aren't protected. Maybe this could be someone who just has an autoimmune condition or just doesn't have a, a potent immunity uh, or someone who's going through a process, maybe like a cancer survival where their immunity isn't strong enough to take a lot of other vaccines. So just by doing that, you can protect those people. And for instance, that's why I get flu vaccine every year. Not really for myself, because if I got flu, I'd probably be okay. I wouldn't like it, um, but I'd probably be okay. But I could maybe get a mild case of it and transfer it to someone else and actually have them catch it and have them end up in the hospital or even die. So that's another really important consideration for getting a vaccine is not just to protect yourself, but to protect those who really can't protect themselves. So, you know, there is that sort of component to it that I would hope that people would consider as well, because that's very real for those families that have to live worrying about whether or not their loved one's going to get the infection. So let me kind of keep moving along here because we're kind of getting to the, to the end. And I did want to discuss a little bit about how this applies to COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, aka the Rona, um, which I know we're kind of really all over at this point. Um, but I did want to mention it because we're talking about vaccines. So these are newer, this Moderna, and the Pfizer vaccine. So it works with something called messenger RNA. So if you remember from biology class, you know you have DNA, and then there's this kind of intermediate messenger RNA, and then you know it codes for a protein, kind of just to break it down from the very simples of how it works. So that's that messenger RNA, is that, that intermediate in between. So what they've done with this is, you know, because we got the genetic code of this COVID virus, they're able to break it down and find one thing, the spike protein, which you, which you hear about. So they get the mRNA code that codes just for that spike protein. 
And they're able to figure out how to put that into a coating that's taken up after it's injected by your cells. Now, it doesn't go into your nucleus where your DNA is. It just goes into the outside of that. So, you know, your, your cells kind of gobble it up. It still sees it as that RNA. And it actually does produce those protein spikes. But that's it. It doesn't produce the virus itself that, you know, doesn't get into your genetic code by any means. It's just devoured by your own cell and it's broken up. Um, but it does produce those spike proteins, which is great because that's a big thing that's triggered on the coronavirus. You see those spikes out there. So again, your immune system is able to see it, mount that immune response. And then when it sees the real thing, sees those real spike proteins, you know, you should have those antibodies there, you know, that, that ability to mount that response to those real spike proteins and basically have it get nowhere. And that's the idea behind this. Now, part of the reason why people are excited about it is that you can use the similar technology for potentially other vaccines and be able to do it much more quickly than a traditional vaccine. You kind of solve those different types. Well, all those types of vaccines are the result of a lot of research and tinkering in the lab to try and finally find one version of that virus or bacteria that can finally be used as a vaccine. This method looks like we could be able to use it for a lot of different types, including hopefully eventually the variants. Now, as you know, it had to go through all those phase one, phase two clinical trials and went through it very quickly, although it, it may look like it went through it um, and maybe skipped steps. It really didn't, uh, but they did get a lot of funding to be able to hold multiple trials Kind of not exactly all at the same time, but they overlapped. So they're able to push it through a little bit faster, it seems. And um, they're also given money to start producing the vaccines a lot faster. So we have this historic turnaround of a vaccine that has never been able to happen before. And yeah, people are excited about the potential for this. And of course, like we said, it'll continue to be studied, to be safe. Um, but I myself took it. And, you know, a lot of my healthcare professional friends have also taken it. And even some older loved ones have also taken it. But yeah, hopefully this is going to be a, a, a great new way to develop vaccines and do it faster. And, you know, if we need it for the variants, it should be able to be produced a lot faster. And we're looking at other ways to use this in research too, um, including maybe even for cancer. But this, it didn't develop overnight. You know, we've been looking at this and thinking about this for, you know, decades now already. So even though it looks maybe new, it really isn't quite as new. It's just the first time that we're using it, but we've been thinking about it and using it in research for a long time now. Uh, It is hopefully exciting and and will prove to be extremely useful. It it seems to be also extremely safe too. So what happened to smallpox? Hopefully you know that it's gone now. Um, In 1967, the World Health Organization began the initiative to eradicate smallpox. And in October 26, 1977, we have the last naturally occurring case of smallpox in Somalia. September 11th, 1978, Janet Parker, who worked as a uh, medical lab sort of photographer in the Birmingham University, the last person to, to die of it. Um, she tragically caught it by accident. And then in 1979, who decrees smallpox is eradicated, which is just a monumental achievement. Um, it's maybe hard to appreciate now, but I mean, this is the first time something like that had been done, and it was just seen as an amazing world health effort, something that had plagued humanity for so long, was finally just gone. Um, you know, Jenner would be extremely proud, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, there still is some of it. It's around for research reasons. Uh, the CDC has it, and uh, Russia has it. Maybe there's some other places that have it. We don't know, but the official places are in Russia. Uh, we actually still have a strategic stockpile of the vaccine. Um, and hopefully we'll never have to, eat to use it, uh, but it's still around. And if you really like this stuff and you find it very fascinating, I would encourage you to actually take a microbiology course, even here at the college where they go into this stuff in much greater detail. And it's, it's quite fascinating. And I think uh, that's it. And I thank you all. And I hope you all found it um, interesting. Thank you. uh, Give me something to think about. You've been listening to Curious Reactions, Vaccines and Social Responses. 
You can find out more about this series for further reading and the PowerPoint from this talk at www.mendocino.edu symposium. I'm Nika Aguirre. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willetson Zukaya 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.